0: We're going to dig into the Bible here and we're going to we're going to talk just a moment. I do want to pause, though, and I want to say thank you to a few people who really made today go. Um, Earlier this week, Julie Burke took time off of work, came up here, walked through this whole building, looked at every square inch, figured out what things we weren't prepared for and started making calls and organizing us. And she set this whole team up to win today. So, Julie, thank you so much for all that hard work that you did. Just the very fact that you can look at a clear screen in a room and knowing how the lights need to be and making sure our worship team has everything they need. Big thanks to Chris and the worship team this morning for being willing to adjust their setup to to make things work. And as of Friday, we had five men that were committed to be here for load-in because we've got a lot of guys that are golfing in Myrtle Beach, and I'm really mad at them for being in Myrtle Beach this weekend. We got a bunch. That's kind of what happens. You start coming to this church, you make a bunch of friends, and that's great. And then all the friends start vacationing together, and that's not so great. But no, but uh, I I started working the phones and email Friday night, and uh, you know we started with five people, and then there was a whole bunch of guys that were going to be able to sleep in this morning and had the week off. But you know, 13 other men showed up today to help load in and load out today. So, fellas, thank you so much for making this. Big- Making this go for us today. If you came in a little bit late, um, you know I'll talk to you afterwards. No, I'm just kidding. If you came in a little bit late this morning, I just want to let you know again. uh, Next Sunday we're doing Echo Eats right after church. Um, which is basically an opportunity for you to get to know other people at Echo over Sunday lunch. There's four different restaurants that we blocked off, some tables or a room that we can eat together. It would help us greatly if you're at all planning to go next week, if you could sign up so that we can make sure we're adequately prepared for you. Also today, ladies, there's a ladies' paint party, which I will have nothing to do with. Immediately after the service today, they're going over to Silver Spring Mining Company. They're going to eat lunch, and they're doing the thing where they all sit around and paint canvases and do girly things. I don't do that. But, um, but anyway, uh, the, the, la- the ladies, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't paint. I don't even paint walls. It's just, I've tried it twice and it ended disastrously and it cost me more money. But if you want ladies, we, I w- Francie, could you stand up, Francie, so everybody else, this is Francie Corelli. Francie, uh, we need to work with, we, we, we need to work with your husband on the lyrics. Uh, every Sunday, he's just writing new songs. He's singing lyrics, we're singing lyrics, sometimes they're the same. <laughs> He's just worshiping the Lord. That's right. He's just spontaneously singing new songs every week. But uh, we love him. <laughs> you called yourself on it. So I just I'm just piling on. But uh, but Francie said that she has a few extra spots today. We've got about 20 ladies or 24 ladies that are going to be going and painting this afternoon. But if you say, hey, you know what? I like to go eat lunch and paint. Just see Francie after church. We've got some space for you. She'll let you know the details cost, all those kinds of things. So enough commercials. Let's dig dig into the Bible. Uh, this is part two of our series called Two Weeks to Live. You should have received the bulletin on your way in, and inside that bulletin are some sermon notes. And how rude of me. For those of you that don't know me, I'm just up here talking. My name is Phil Nauer. I am the pastor of Echo Community Church. I have been married for 16 years, have a three-year-old son, live in the area, and am thrilled to be your pastor and just love getting to do what I get to do here at Echo. We're in a teaching series called Two Weeks to Live, what Jesus' final 14 days teaches about life. This is the second part of this series here's what this is about jesus knew something about his life that you and i don't know jesus knew something he knew a lot of things about his life that you and i don't know about ours he knew and we studied last week in the gospel of matthew a year before he died the bible tells us that jesus knew the who the when the how and the where of his death he knew it he knew in advance who was going to kill him where it was going to happen when it was going to happen he also understood why it was going to happen. And here's the, the most amazing thing about Jesus. Knowing when and where he was going to die, he ran right towards it. He didn't run away from it. If you told me that, you know, on a certain date, a piano was going to fall for a third story and that was going to be it to me. I would not walk down that street. I would walk, not walk near that building. I would avoid it at all costs. Jesus knew his time on earth was limited and he lived with a focused intensity and a focused priority because he knew who he was. And he knew why he was on the earth. And so with that as our backdrop, we're just looking at the last two weeks of Jesus's life in that context. This is the time of the year when we kind of look at the events leading up to the cross and leading up to his resurrection. And so we're kind of looking at a couple of these events. Last week, we looked two weeks, 14 days before he died, Jesus went to a funeral. We talked about that last week. If you'd like to go to our website, echochurchonline.com, the message and media page is uploaded for you. You can catch up on that, listen to it later. But today we're going to look at what happened. We're going to fast forward the story to five days, five days. See, the clock is ticking down. And here's what we know. When you realize your time is limited, when you realize your days are counting down, you really want to make your days count. We tend to make better decisions when the clock is ticking down. (laughs) We tend your priorities tend to bubble up to the surface. And so we're going to see what we can learn about what happened five days before Jesus came back or before Jesus, before Jesus died on the cross uh, in a sermon entitled, Jesus Enters Jerusalem. So here's really the question. Just to, in just a moment, I'm going to show you some pictures. Uh, but before we show you some pictures, here's the question today. What makes a memorable entrance? What make, we've kind of made a big deal about this. We get into the whole making an entrance thing don't we? What makes a memorable entrance? Now, I was born and raised in the Philadelphia area, so this story doesn't really apply to me. But some of you, unfortunately, are Ravens fans. And you had this dude that doesn't play for you guys anymore that knew how to make an entrance. I will not do it this morning, but Ray Lewis. (laughs) I'd be a YouTube all star, but, you know, Ray Lewis knew how to make an entrance, did he not? He came out. Every, he had the pyros. He had the dance. He had all these crazy. Ray Lewis knew how to get that whole stadium fired up. How about how about this thing that my wife likes to watch? that I don't really care for as much. How about the opening ceremonies of the Olympics? Have you ever seen those? You want to talk about pageantry? You want to talk about hours of people just wearing crazy things and walking in circles? And people going crazy over it. That's really what it is. You look at some of the outfits these jokers wear at the, like, the opening ceremonies. They're just walking around the track. Everybody's going crazy. They know how to make an entrance. I see Tawny and Jonathan sitting over here. They're getting married in just a few. What's the countdown now? Like two months, they're getting married. Tawny and Jonathan. Rebecca's sitting next to them. You got married a few weeks ago. Tyler's not at church this morning. We'll do counseling later. You know, we, <laughs> I'm looking at Tawny over here. How about the bride at a wedding? Listen, fellas, it's not about us. We just kind of come in the side door and stand there. You know, just stand there, shut up. It's all about the bride. She makes makes an entrance, and we just kind of stand there and we watch. (laughs) There's all kinds of really cool entrances. But, you know, the most memorable entrance in all of history takes place in this story. The most memorable entrance in all of history that anybody ever talked about was, the, was when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. It actually, um, it's, it's in a period of time that we as Christians will call the Holy Week, the days leading up to Jesus' death. On the cross and just a couple things you need to know we're going to be in Luke 19 today a couple things you need to know this happens in the days leading up to Passover and there's so much more to talk about there maybe the next time we study this passage I'll bring that part out but just know that this is during the Jewish during the Jewish holiday of Passover when they honored and commemorated what happened back in Egypt when uh, the death angel came around and, and, and God said if you don't have the blood of a lamb on your door. The death angel will come in and kill the firstborn child. And the Israelites who worshipped God put the blood, of, the, put the blood of, the, of a perfect lamb on the door. And the angel passed over. And so they remembered this. Every, what's, interest, what's interesting, here's the only side note I can give you. There is a little bit of debate on whether Jesus came in on Palm Sunday or Palm Monday. Okay, I can't really open that up. It doesn't change the story. It's just when we try and attach days and dates to the chronology of the story. And the reason why that's interesting is the people that believe that he came in on actually Monday would put it at exactly five days out. And at that point in Passover, that was actually the day when the family chose the lamb that they were going to sacrifice. Interesting, because Jesus, who we know today through the benefit of the years that we believe to be the perfect lamb, was actually chosen that day and entered Jerusalem. It's it's a nice thing to add to the story, doesn't change it, but I mean, just a little little extra for you there. Uh, The politics of this season, here's what you need to know. At this time in history, and I love history, history, gives, history and geography tell more of this story than, than we give it credit for. Um, Israel's not an independent nation at this point. Who's in charge? Do you know those of you that understand the empires? Which empire was the ruling force of the day? The Romans. Anybody know who their emperor was at the time of this story? Okay, Caesar. Let's get more specific. Which Caesar? Okay, Augustus. Tiberius. Caesar was kind of this, this region's... Guy, And then you had then you had Herod, who was the ruler of an, a, a, when you go concentric circles, you go Tiberius Caesar had the most charge. And then a little closer, like the region of Galilee, you had Herod. And then right there in Judea, you had a guy named Pontius Pilate. Now, here's the deal with the Romans. Their empire covered the territory of Israel. Now, was it God's plan for Israel to be a dependent, conquered nation? God's dream for Israel was to be an independent nation. But the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus was really in charge. And here's the deal. As long as the Jews paid their taxes and they didn't revolt, Rome pretty much let them do what they wanted to do. They had their own police force. They had their own judicial system. Problem is when they started to revolt or when they didn't want to pay their taxes, there was tension that arose. So that's kind of what's going on. So the Jews believed that this would end. The Jews did not like being under the charge of Rome. And they believed that the Old Testament told them that the Messiah would come as a conquering king. And in their own mind, the Messiah would come and lead a political coup and topple the Romans. And then he himself would become king. So in this story, when Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the reaction of the people is not just because they think here comes the man to die on the cross for us. They think here comes the Messiah who's going to rally the troops and we're going to go to battle right now and we're going to kick the Romans out. And guess what? When they find out that when they found out that Jesus was not who they wanted him to be, they turned on him. They turned on him. You and I do the same thing. A lot of times we make Jesus out to be somebody that he really isn't and when he doesn't deliver on that we turn on him. And we might not crucify him on a tree anymore. We crucify him by saying that he's our Lord and we live otherwise. We do what we want. So really, that's what's going on here. Let me show you. I want to show you a couple pictures. I was in Israel a little less than a year ago, and I want to show you just three or four pictures so you can get in your mind's eye. One of the biggest misconceptions of this story is that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's actually on he's on a colt riding down the streets of Jerusalem. Not exactly the case. This story takes place while Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. It starts on the Mount of Olives. He goes down the hill and then up to Jerusalem, which is a completely walled in city that had gates. Let me show you a couple pictures. Um, We want to we want to go to those. I'll tell you what you're seeing here. This is actually where they believe to be the route that Jesus walked down. You can see how steep that it is and how it winds down. That's taken coming down from the Mount of Olives down into the valley. And then if you can actually see off in the distance there, you see um, that's the Dome of the Rock, which we could talk about for four or five hours, but we won't this morning. And there's all kinds of graves off to your left, which is also a fascinating story we can't talk about this morning. But, but uh, they're actually going down the hill. So when, when the Bible talks about the beginning of Luke, up to ver- the beginning of Luke 19 up to verse 38, verse 40, when it talks about him riding on the colt and people cutting down palm branches – this is what he's seeing. He's not in Jerusalem yet, but he's going down the Mount of Olives, down to the bottom of the valley. But along the way, and our passage we'll read in a second this morning, he stopped somewhere, and I want to show you a picture that they took of me at the exact spot where they believed it took place. If we want to go to the next picture, it says, and we'll read this in a second, that at one point Jesus stopped. And he looked over the whole city and even as he's making this memorable entrance and everybody's cutting down palm branches saying, Hosanna, 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 it says Jesus stopped and he wept over the city. We'll read it in a second. But this is actually where, where my buddy Zach took that picture of I'm standing in the exact spot that they believe that Jesus stood at. And that's exactly what he was looking at. So he's not in Jerusalem yet, but you can see the wall around the front. You can see where uh, the Dome of the Rock is built, which is <laughs> Built over the spot where they believe that Abraham, was offer, Abraham offered uh, Isaac as a sacrifice up to the Lord. It's, that's on the Temple Mount. That's where the Jewish Temple was. But that's where the, the Muslims have claimed as theirs for right now. And the tension goes on. It's a long story about history. But that's kind of where he was. So you can see, not in Jerusalem, but this is what he was looking at. I will tell you, I don't know if there's a more beautiful city on the earth that you can look at from a mountain than Jerusalem. It's beautiful. It is breath. It move- and I've seen most a lot of the major cities in the world. It is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Next picture, um, we're now at the bottom of the hill, looking up. Now, what I'm pointing towards is what's actually called the Great Gate or the Golden Gate. That is the gate that a lot of the Jews believe that when the Messiah does actually come, we believe the Second Coming, he's going to enter through that gate literally now it 's sealed off right now, but that 's kind of a big deal. The only way you can get into Jerusalem is through a gate somewhere, so that just kind of gives you an idea he 's at the bottom of the hill and then climbing up, and then the last picture is actually at one of the gates so it 's actually opened up This is I actually walked through that one uh, that 's one of the gates that you can actually walk right through and literally. Or that uh, newspaper stand is. If you turn left, right there, about 300 yards to your left is where you'd have access to the temple. So, kind of gives you an idea of the geography of what's going on in this story. So he makes this huge entrance on the Mount of Olives. People start cutting down palm branches, saying "Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna." He walks down the mountain. He comes up, and but he pauses. He pauses. In the middle of this event, five days before he died, while people are around him saying, Hosanna, 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 they're celebrating, they're excited. Jesus stops, he looks over the city, and he cries. Only two times in the whole Bible does it tell us that Jesus cried. There's a third time in Hebrews where it refers to that he cried. While he, the, the writer of Hebrews says that he cried while he prayed, but there's two times in the Gospels. Once we talked about last week at Lazarus's funeral. And then once this week when he looks over Jerusalem. How out of place... How out of place in a time where there's this huge entrance for Jesus to cry. But he tells us why. He tells us why. This story, interestingly enough, is recorded in all four Gospels. We're going to focus on Luke's account today, Dr. Luke. I want you to read with me this morning and then put on your seatbelts because this is going to move pretty quickly. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, with all that being understood, here's what it says. As he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, that picture that you saw there, this is what he's looking at. Here's what he, he begins to weep. Here's what he says. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They'll crush you into the ground and your children with you. And actually, Jesus was being prophetic in 70 A.D. The Romans actually built ramparts. They built uh, these embankments so that they could go up and over the walls, killed 600,000 Jews. And tore everything down. So he he sees this in his mind as he's prophesying over the city. He says, they'll crush you into the ground and your children with you. You know, you think about this is not just soldiers that died. Do you catch this? He says, not just you, but your children. You can turn on the TV right now and see barbarism all over the world. Can't you? Crazy, crazy times we live in. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place. And I want to drive in this phrase because you did not recognize it. When God visited you, you didn't recognize it when God visited you. So after this memorable, rousing entrance, why did Jesus break down? Here's the big idea for today. It's in your notes. You can fill in if you have your notes with it. You can fill in the blanks. If you don't want to fill in the blanks, you can just look at them blankly. That's fine. But here's the deal. The big idea is that Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of two things. There was something to be understood that the people didn't understand. And there were some things to be recognized that the people didn't recognize. And I realize even in that, it's not all nice and succinct. We have to unpack that some more. Here's what really moved Jesus to tears. He said two things. There's something I wish you'd understand that you don't get. You of all people should get it. You should understand this. You should understand what's going on. You should understand my timing, my agenda, but you don't get it. And there's something you should recognize that you don't recognize. I wonder how many times he looks at my life and your life and says, oh, I just wish they'd get it. And they don't. I'm being very obvious over here and they don't recognize it. My wife probably says this about me all the time. She could say, yes, Phil, please let this sink into your spirit. today." There are all kinds of times you just don't understand and you don't recognize. and You better recognize or else there's going to be problems. But Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the Jews, there was something to understand that they didn't understand. There's something to recognize that they didn't recognize. So let's unpack that. I have to ask, what was so hard to understand? And what did they not recognize? Let's dig into it. Number one, here's what they didn't understand. He tells us, they did not understand, number one in your notes, how to join God's kingdom. You have to catch the irony of all this here. The people are saying, Jesus, come enter our city. And Jesus is saying, I don't want to just enter your kingdom. I want you to enter mine. Come into our city. Come on in. Here he comes. And he's saying, you're missing it. You're missing it. Here's what he says How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Oh, the people were looking for peace. What kind of peace were they looking for? Political peace. They're like, Look, we need peace. Jesus, we need you to show up, and here's specifically what we need from you. We need you to come in, marshal the troops, we'll fight with you. We can kick out the Romans. We've got the numbers, we've got the people on our side. And then you be the king and give us peace. Is Jesus saying, "You want peace, but I've come for peace." Now we might get that, but you understand sometimes we don't get that? Jesus, I need peace. And the peace that I need is I need my boss to do A, B C-D-E. The peace that I need is for my husband to just get his act together. The peace I need is for my three-year-old to just please agree to go, to go on the potty, please. And Jesus says, "Oh, I'm here to give you peace. I'm here to give you capital P, peace. Oh, that's great, Jesus. I'll take that if that gives me all these other things. It is hard to understand how to join God's kingdom. Here's why. Here, it's in your notes. You see, we'd rather have God join our kingdom. The truth is we join God's kingdom and his moral code. He doesn't join ours. I'll read that to you again. It's in your notes. The truth is we join God's kingdom and his moral code. He doesn't join ours. You have to understand what Jesus was saying here. He's looking at the people. And he's recognizing they want him to come and invade their kingdom. But he's saying, I'd rather have you come and join, join my kingdom. And he recognized that the same people who were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which actually means we'll talk about it in a second. Hosanna, Hosanna means save us now that's what it means literally translated save us now king conquering king here's what he's saying you come to join my kingdom i don't come to join yours this is very 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 hard to understand i'll try and illustrate it as best i can but then i'll make it very very clear to you you know it's kind of like you know it's kind of like if if i'm carpooling somewhere and you ride in my car we're going to drive at my speed we're going to listen to what i want to on the radio we're going to talk about what i want to talk about There's some people I do not want to ride with them when they drive because I don't like riding by their rules at their speed, at their rate of lane changes and their choice of stuff on the radio. Sometimes it's like, listen, if we're going to go somewhere, I'm going to drive. So I know that it's by my code. We're going to do things my way. When you have a guest come into your house, they come in under your rules, under your code, whether they wear their shoes or they don't wear their shoes, which bathroom they use where we put our plates and all the, you know, some people would rather, you'd rather, you're, you might be the type of person, I'd rather everybody come to my house so it can be my way. <laughs> Other people say, I don't want people into my house. I'd rather go to their house, eat their food, go in their bathroom, walk on their carpet, let them straighten up and clean up. Dude, it, it, I learned this when I went to Haiti multiple times. The moment that I got off the plane to Haiti, I recognized it does not matter that I'm an American. It is their country. It is their rules. It is their codes. It is ridiculous to think that you're going to be in someone else's country and live by your own rules. That will land you in jail or in much worse, hurt. There are Discovery Channel shows that will show you what happens when you get locked up abroad, and it's not fun. But here's what we're saying to God, essentially. And I think it's a deal many people try and make. God, I want to join your kingdom, but I want my moral code. I want to be... I want... I kind of want you to be the passenger riding shotgun. I want your conversation. I want your cologne. I want you to be a good traveling buddy. But you are not going to you're not taking the steering wheel and deciding where this car goes. I get to decide that very much. It is logically inconsistent to ask God to be God while we retain our own moral code. That's not the way that works. If he is your king, then you're in his kingdom, not yours. And he said, This is hard to understand, and he wept because he said, You need to understand this, and you don't. We must live by God. If you want to join God's kingdom, you must live by God's moral code. Let me just spell this out. You understand the Bible is very clear that the kingdom of God is not just reciting a prayer and going to church regularly. It's a way of living. It's a way of life. It's the way you choose to treat people, the way you choose to think. You understand God has a moral code for how you handle conflict. Do You understand that? And the biggest opposition to people coming to Jesus, I'm convinced it's not because church is ineffective or our graphics aren't nice enough or our light isn't great enough. The biggest opposition we run into in growing God's kingdom is that people look at Christians and see no difference between them and themselves. You talk the same as I do. You laugh at the same stuff I do. You post the same things I do. You lose your temper the same way that I do. You treat finances the same that I do. You treat the people you like the same way I do and the people you hate the same way that I do. Only you think you're better because you recited a prayer. You go to church, you give some money, you serve in a team. That's saying I want God's kingdom, but my rules. And Jesus said that's not the way that it works. And he wept because they didn't understand it. There's a way that Jesus tells us to handle conflict. Let's just talk about that for a second. What Jesus says is in the kingdom, we're not just a kingdom and we're not just citizens. We're brothers and sisters in this kingdom and we should handle conflict differently than people outside our kingdom handles it. It means that in God's kingdom, you're gonna get offended by other people. Other people are gonna make decisions that hurt you. Other people are gonna say things that you don't like. But it means that in God's kingdom, with him living inside of me and as a citizen of his kingdom, I'm gonna handle conflict by God's moral code, not by my own moral code. You see, in God's moral code, what happens is when someone offends me, the first thing I do is I take a step back, says the Bible, and I evaluate my own heart before I open up my mouth and lose it. And I step back, and I forgive quickly, and I give the benefit of the doubt, and I give grace, and I give mercy. But you know what? Sometimes that doesn't quite get you there. Sometimes then, Jesus says, you'll go to prayer, you'll go to worship, and that offense, that issue... That person comes back into your mind. And Jesus says at that point, then you recognize that it's on you to go and confront. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't talk to 20 other people about it and call it venting. We laugh. That's sin. That's sin. That is destructive. That's not how we handle it. That's not God's moral code. You know what we do? If we go to that person or people, we go privately privately. Not with a whole audience around, not when you feel like it, you go privately because privately gives you the best shot at resolving it without collateral or civilian casualties. You go respectfully and you go with one of two motives or both in place. One, to bring peace, not to just speak your mind. Well, they just need to know and they need to give a piece of my mind. Well, the problem is you probably gave 10 pieces away where you don't have any left. You go to make peace and or to bring truthful correction, because sometimes people are going to do you wrong and you need to let them know that they did you wrong and you need to help them see that and you need to bring correction. That's God's moral code. And if you follow God's moral code. We resolve things, we don't live with grudges, we don't live with issues, you don't have to live in what we call artificial harmony, that means you don't like me, but you're going to pretend like I do or you do. We don't like each other, we just fake it because faking it's better than being mean. No, they're both wrong. We don't want artificial harmony. We don't want mean spiritedness. We want to live as far away from being fake and phony with each other without being mean. There's a moral code for how we handle conflict. Problem is most of us have our own moral code for how we handle conflict, don't we? We have a whole different way. We vent to others. You know what venting is? That's talking about somebody you should be talking to. Venting is when you talk negatively about somebody you should be talking to. Well, I'm just venting. That's a nice sanitized way of describing sidestepping God's moral code to make yourself feel better. Are you venting because you really want someone to speak truth back in your life? Are you venting because you want to feel better about yourself and have someone else feel sorry for you and tell you that you're right, enabling you to avoid the conflict and just have two people now that are angry at this person? That's your moral code. That's not God's moral code. That's not what the Bible teaches. We talk about people we haven't talked to. Our moral code is we air it on social media. Get on your news your news feed there, and I'll tell you, about 30% of them are people venting about somebody, something, some company, something else. Is that the way we're supposed to handle it? You're posting scriptures on Saturday, and then you're trashing your cable company or your electric company or your boss on Tuesday? Something to understand you don't understand. When you come into God's kingdom, he says, that's not how we handle things in God's kingdom. Well, I'm not supposed to be a doormat. Of course not. You're supposed to handle conflict and you handle it by God's way, not by your way. How about this? Well, a pastor, I don't do that. I, I don't run my mouth. Do you listen to people run their mouth when you know you shouldn't? Do you butt into conversations? Are you the person everybody seems? Well, I don't know. All this drama seems to come to me. Why do you think it comes to you? Have you ever been there? You've been the innocent bystander. Someone comes to you. Well, you would not believe what Pastor Phil just said to me the other day. You would not let me tell you all about what he said. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe he would say that. Oh, that's just terrible. You know, I can't believe. It. You know what you're doing? You're enabling. You're an accomplice. How about shutting that stuff down and say, you know, have you talked to Pastor Phil about that? Well, I, go, I, I, well, no, I'm just venting to you. I'll tell you what, um, I'll give you 24 hours to talk to him about it. And if you don't, I'll let him know because the Bible says he's really supposed to know that. And, you know, I shouldn't be involved in this at all. Really, that, that's an offense you two need to work out. And I'm not going to cover up your mess. You do that one time, they won't come back to you anymore. So why do they keep coming to you? Why do they keep coming to you? Well, Pastor, I don't know that I like all this... There's something to understand you don't understand. When you come into God's kingdom, we do life God's way. I'm sick and tired and weary of what I call over churched syndrome. People who are over churched and under pastored and under discipled. You've heard it a thousand times. You know what to do, you just choose not to. You just choose not to. There's a whole lot of other things I could say, but I don't know if I've offended all of you yet. yet. Let me dig into a couple of these here. <laughs> Well, here's the reality is, you know, in God's kingdom, his moral code, is, he says, you love others. You love not only your friends, you love your enemies. You pray for the people who do you wrong. You love people. Do you know what I think is the most unloving thing you could do for somebody in your family is when you see something that's diseased in their life, you see something that will kill them. if they, You see this major problem in their character. You see this major offense in their eye that's hurting them and it's killing them. And you actively work to disguise it from them well, I don't want to take it to my friend. I don't want to really point it out to him. They might get mad at me. Well, that's selfish. That says, I see my friend over here has got this offense. They've got this bad attitude. They're a bully. They run their mouth all the time. They hurt people. They vent. They spew venom. They do all this and that and the other thing. They don't get the one. Everybody knows, but no one will tell them. That's the most unloving thing you could ever do for somebody. Because you know that thing is going to make them die spiritually. But you'd rather disguise it than inflict any possible discomfort on yourself. That's not how family does things. You want to do that, get out of God's kingdom you can make your own in God's kingdom. We lovingly confront other people's weaknesses, weaknesses and difficulties because we care about them. But we do it the right way. We do it God's way. You're going to be in God's kingdom. That's what you get. You get brothers and sisters. And I wonder, can anybody outside of God's kingdom come into God's kingdom and see this operate anywhere? Or are we just a more sanitized version of everything else? A whole lot of things to think about. We pretend like all this stuff doesn't matter, but it does. I'm telling you, it does. It is the difference between life and death. Jesus himself said this. Many people will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we raise the dead? Didn't we cast out demons? And he says, I tell you the truth. I'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. The only people who enter the kingdom of God are those who do the will of my father and obey it. Here's what Jesus is saying. There are many, 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 many people. Who think they are Christians when in fact they are not, and those people will not get access to heaven. And you know what he talks about in Matthew when he unpacks this in the Sermon on the Mount? He says people like this say "Lord, Lord," and in the Semitic language, when you repeated something twice, there's an emotion. This is not in your notes. It's just coming to me right now. "Lord, Lord." In the Semitic language, when you repeat something twice, it's a sign of passion. He says there are people who think they're Christians who are passionate about God. They cry during worship. They lift their hands. These people are people who it says, we cast out demons in your name. They have a ministry. They've got gifts going on in their life. They're on teams. They serve places. They're passionate about God. They recognize him as Lord. They come to him. But he says, they don't know me. And here's the kicker. What keeps them out of heaven? They never submitted their will to God. They do what they want, not what God wills. These are people who say, I want God's kingdom, but I want my own moral code. And I wonder if that's you and that's me. I wonder. You need to think about this. Are you genuinely a Christian? Or are you artificially a Christian? Are you authentically a follower of Jesus Christ? Or when it comes right down to it, do you pick and choose your own moral code on what feels best to you? I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be your pastor. I'm not here to be your buddy or to be popular. God knows I'm not helping myself this morning. But the reality is we are all about being and making disciples. We are about following his word. And Jesus stood over the city and he wept. Not because he felt bad for himself, but because he said there's something to understand that you don't understand. And it brought him to tears. So this morning, I want you to understand Jesus is passionate about you joining his kingdom. But we don't have a God who comes and joins ours. We join his because here's at the end of the day, if you have a God And you have a moral code for yourself. When you say, I have a moral code for the way I want to live, the way I want to treat sex, the way I want to treat relationships, the way I want to treat decisions, the way I want to treat what I watch on TV and my entertainment. Here's my moral code. And God, you may not speak into it. I have a moral code that God may not speak into. Doesn't that make you God? Doesn't that make you your own God? If you have a moral code God can't speak into, you become your own God. He has a moral code and when we come into his kingdom. We get all the inheritance of God. We get all the riches of God. We get all the blessing of God. We get all the grace of God, all the mercy of God. And we live by his moral code. Well, pastor, I am not that person, but I want to be. Your only hope is in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. The only way I become somebody that I'm not is him living in me. I can't make myself that person. But the evidence of Jesus at work in our lives is when things that should come naturally that don't start to happen. When people who are mean and nasty and short-tempered start to find patience And love and grace for people and people who are promiscuous, people who are hateful, people who are are sordid and twisted, people who are crass and coarse, people who are selfish. People say, well, I would just rather avoid everything, or I would just rather, you know, some people want to avoid conflict, some people just bully their way. Well, I just speak my mind all the time. Well, stop doing that. (laughs) Jesus didn't say go speak your mind all the time and let the chips fall where they may. Grace, mercy, love, tact for people. Something hard to understand. Let's move on to something else, point number two. What didn't they recognize? They didn't recognize what Jesus was trying to deliver them from. They did not recognize what Jesus was trying to deliver them from. Let me hustle through these last two points here. Here's here's the deal. He came to deliver them. Who did they think Jesus came to deliver them from? Who did they think? The Romans. Romans. He's coming to deliver us from the bad guys, riding the horses with the helmets, with the red furry mohawks, those guys. The Romans. He's come to deliver us. Yay! Jesus says, I've come to deliver you but I've come to deliver you. Not from these guys. He's kind of saying, you know, well, yeah, I could do that, but then you're going to have to make me your king. Or I could deliver you from death and you'll have to kill me. So crown me or crucify me, do one or the other. Crown me or crucify me. He came to deliver them from something, but they were looking for him to deliver them from something else. Let me make sense out of this for you real quick. Let me just skip this point. In your notes, we look for, we look, we look for material deliverance. Bail me out of my tangible problems. My lousy job, my tough finances, my miserable relationship, my singleness, my aloneness, bail me out of this. But Jesus came to bring a spiritual deliverance. We look for a material thing from Jesus. And many people, I'm convinced, they start out with Jesus and they say they want spiritual deliverance, but what they really want is material deliverance. So they say the prayer, they go to the church, and then when they have problems, they fall away. Why? Because they were looking for material deliverance. And when Jesus doesn't become what we want him to be, we go find something else that will. I will tell you right now, Many people say this, well, if Jesus would just give me a better job, better money, if he could just repair this relationship, if he could just make this part of my life more peaceful, I'll really follow him. That's the thing that's holding me back. If Jesus dying for you was not enough, nothing will be. What's easier to do? Increase your paycheck or die for someone's sins? If Jesus delivering you from sin, from Satan, from hell, from death, if that deliverance is not enough, nothing else will be. But we are so bent on material deliverance that we've created two excesses. Let me talk to you about this for just a moment. We've created two excesses in church. This is not in your notes either. And, but I saw something yesterday on social media that I feel like I have to talk about this morning. We want so much easier to be this material Christianity we want God to bless us so much materially or we don't or we've created this extreme and on the one hand we'll just call it the prosperity gospel let's just go there this morning one of my great colleagues from Atlanta just asked his congregation "Buy him a 65 million dollar jet let's talk about this today on the one end you have prosperity gospel and in this we say all true believers God's desire is for you to be wealthy he wants you to have it all and in prosperity gospel we give to get we give of our offering. We give of our time because by God, if you give him a 100, he'll give you a 1,000. You give him a this, he'll give you a new car. He'll give you, this, you get a, And you get a new car and you get a new car. And now we're all Oprah and we have a fledgling network and everything else. That's just for free. We'll edit that out later. But we have this prosperity gospel. We give to get. And we look at poverty and we say, those people aren't blessed. This is really where it's at. So this is a continuum, right? So on one extreme, we have the prosperity gospel. God wants everybody to be wealthy. And this is all true believers are wealthy and we've got it going on. And if you're not wealthy, you're not truly blessed. There must be something wrong with you. We give to get. Then on the other extreme, you have the poverty gospel. All true believers are poor and proud of it. We don't have because by God, we don't need it. We give and we expect nothing. And wealthy people are not truly blessed. They're arrogant and they're abusers and they're cocky and they're. And this is really it. Because we want Jesus to be a material deliverer, so we put all of Christianity and blessedness on an economic continuum. Well, where does Echo, where does Jenny Life fall on this? I don't know. We'll just make up a new word. We're going to call it stewardship. Stewards believe, here's what a steward believes everything comes from God. And I just manage it. Stewards say, my economic condition does not indicate how healthy I am spiritually. I can be poor. I can be in the middle. I can be wealthy. And I can be blessed. I give to give. Because I love him. And I love his work. I give him my money. I give him my gifts. I give him my energy. I give him. That's where... We land in all of this. So you got the prosperity gospel. Hey, give to get. You put, you know, if you've got financial problems, write the biggest check you can and God will give you double for your trouble. And down here. Oh, I, I give it all away. I don't need anything. I don't want anything. I don't. And then over here we just say, you know what? We are stewards. My economic condition does not necessarily indicate. Can God bless me? Yes. And if he wants to bless me, I thank him for it. I don't. Oh, no someone wants to bless you, someone wants to give you encouragement, look them in the eye and say thank you and stop complaining then. if I've said this before. There's lots of different ways that God blesses us. It doesn't always come back financially. Sometimes it comes back in encouragement, opportunities, relationships are healed and restored. Why not, instead of pushing that stuff away, why don't you just say thank you? When God sends encouragement your way through a human being, don't say, oh, I'm really terrible, I can't. That's poverty gospel talk. You say, I'm really, really discouraged. Someone comes to you and say, I just want to tell you, I really appreciate it. And you say, oh, I'm really not. <laughs> Give it to the wealthy. I'm... <sighs> you look them in the eye and you say, thank you. That means a lot to me. Well, I can't say that because that would be being arrogant. No, 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 no. That's you being a steward. That's saying I'm giving to God and God recognize what I need and he gives it back to me. Don't discourage that person and that, or at least don't go back and whine to God. I'm so discouraged. I sent 13 people your way. You sent them away. I'm just so discouraged. They were looking for material deliverance, and so do we. It's not about what Jesus could do. If Jesus would just do blank, I'd really serve him. If if dying for you isn't enough, then $10,000 a year more, or a bigger house, or a nicer car, or a better relationship, or a great husband with nice teeth and long hair. None of those things, none of those things will ever be enough. And finally, number three, as we close, they did not recognize when Jesus was present. That's probably the kicker out of all of it. Here's what Jesus says in verse 44, "You did not recognize it when God visited you." Now we're 5 minutes away from the for the close of the service and in 5 minutes worship teams to come back up. I need you to dial in on this cuz this is the tragedy that I think if Jesus walked the the earth again, which he doesn't need to, once was plenty. I think he'd still weep over this. Here's what he's saying. He's looking at all these people around him, cutting down palm branches, saying, save us now, save us now, save us now, lead a political coup. We need a deliverer. We need a conquering king. We need a savior. And he's saying, I am here without a disguise on and you don't even recognize me. Everything the Messiah was, everything he was all about was literally right there. They could touch him. I hear people say all the time, well, if Jesus just would come back today and speak to the church, we would miss him the same way they missed him. Jesus said, here's a tragedy. The king of kings is here. The Messiah is here. I'm right here. You can touch me. You can eat with me. My presence is here. And you're missing it. What he says is you didn't even recognize it. Is it possible that God's presence wraps itself around you every day and you don't recognize it at all? When you wake up in the morning and you open up your eyes, God's presence is there to meet you. And you walk throughout the day as though he's absent. Pastor Phil, the presence of God is an abstract concept. Listen, I could talk for months without taking a nap on the presence of God. I won't do that. Relax. We've got a rental agreement. We've got to be out here by a certain time today. I don't know how to explain it to you in a way that would do justice to what the presence of God is. But a way of defining the presence of God is that is where God is present. The presence of God is not where God is absent. Well, how do I recognize the presence of God? Well, it's just simply whatever way you personally recognize God is present with you right now. There's thousands of different ways. But the tragedy here was that Jesus was present. Here's what we think, and here's the last thing, last thing put in your notes. It seems hard to recognize the presence of God even when he stands right beside us. We think God is disguised. He is not. God's goal is for you to know who he is. We think God's disguised. He's not. His goal is for you to know who he is. I have to look so hard for God. I can't find him. I don't see him in my finances. I don't see him in my home. I don't see him in my family. I don't see him in my relationships. I'm always upset. I'm always frustrated. I'm not the person I used to be. We think God is disguised. He's not. And he wept over the fact that he said, if you would just recognize that everything you're looking for is right here and you're missing it. Is it possible you are missing out on God's presence regularly because you don't recognize it? Here's my commercial and my endorsement on the presence of God. The presence of God is truly the most wonderful thing. It is the most wonderful thing. It changes our character. It changes our desires. When the presence of God comes, let me tell you, you don't struggle to pray. You don't struggle to worship. You don't struggle to think deeply about who God is. You don't struggle to find areas of your life that need to be prepared. When the presence of God comes, sinful thoughts seem a thousand miles away things you struggle with for years disappear you won't become perfect but for that period of time when you recognize the presence of god you won't be part of any sin either when god's presence fills you here's what happens god's nature his way of being comes to you we'll love each other you'll start loving people who were previously unlovable and even unlikable to you and you almost won't be able to help it it's almost like you'll be like there is something growing out of me there's like. There's love coming out of me that's never been in there before and I'm not manufacturing it. it's not on the assembly line. There's just things coming out in the way that I think and I behave that I, Exactly. It's Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's what it is. Violent people come into the presence of God and they're tamed like lambs. Lust-filled people are filled with purity and holiness. Friends will come and you'll be wonderfully transformed. Once you've tasted of the presence of the living, joy-filled, holy, almighty God... You won't want anything else. Well, pastor, how do I recognize it? I feel like I just walked through life. And, and I feel that I've walked into a lot of churches in my life all over the world. And there's some places where you can tell these people recognize God's presence. There's other churches, people just hands in the pockets, staring straight forward. They're on their phones. They're, it's like he's right here and they're just so missing. it. Well, how do, I, how do I experience God's presence? So that's a whole four-part series on itself. Let me give you two things to take with you. Number one, we talked about it earlier. You come clean to God. Because you won't experience God's presence if there's a disconnect between your relationship with him because of sin. If there's unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life, you and God won't be able to connect deeply. You won't be able to understand and be aware of his presence. Trust me, I mean, it, it happens in marriage. Some of you are married. Or some of you have been married. Some of you hope to be married. The reality is there's conflict in marriage. Just, just put that out there. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. But I recognize when there's an issue between my wife and I, we're not connected real deeply until that issue is resolved. We try and make this deal, you know, like, look, we will not go to bed angry. We might not be able to solve all the world's problems. We're not going to go to bed angry at each other because we value one another's presence. I read you earlier from Psalm chapter 32. David said, my body was wasting away when I refused to get clean with God about the issues that had happened in my past. But then I said to myself, I will repent of my sins. And he forgave me and restored relationship and he connected deeply to God's presence. If you're trying to feel God's presence and it's hard for you, come clean to God. Second thing I tell you is you just have to learn to tune in to his presence, which really means you have to get yourself out of the center of your life. If you want the supreme to be at the center of your life, then nothing else can be supreme he has to be at the center. If I'm always in God's presence, he has to be at the center. Either I have a God who serves me or I serve him. You either have a God that serves you, does your beck and call, material deliverance stuff, or you serve him. The God who serves me, we pray to him, we say prayers like, God, I need you to do this for me or that for me. I need you to fix this, change this, change that. The God whom I serve, I pray things like, God, I worship you. God, I love you. God, I want to be with you. God, I want to change. I want to be near to you. Obedience is easy for people who join God's kingdom. Obedience is difficult for people who want God to join their kingdom. When God is at the center of my life, all of nature draws me to God. Here's the reality. If God could change a self-centered man like Moses into a man whose God was at the center of his life, then surely he can take the self-centeredness out of you and me so I can recognize his presence. He could place his spirit in the very central part of me so that my desire is for him all the time, that there might be a thought of God in my heart throughout the entire day, so that every part of my life reminds me of him. How many times has God met me in my car on the beltway as I'm sitting still in traffic for hours at a time? And just his presence meets me right there. How many times I've been in dirty airports and forsaken parts of the world Found God's presence. I was in a community in Paraguay one time that had never even seen a Caucasian person. It was a village of people, it was a contained village out, indigenous people out in the middle of nowhere who all had some form of the HIV virus and were kind of quarantined and were out there by themselves. And we went in, we took a bus with 37 teenagers when I was a youth pastor, and we drove for four hours and went out to this village. They had never even heard of God before, and we got out of that bus. Every single person in that village accepted Jesus Christ. We did do silly little human videos. We worked with the translator as best we could. And I'm telling you, I've never felt the presence of God more real around, around people who had never heard of him before. And yet we walk into church sometimes and don't feel a drop of his presence. What's the problem here? See, those people didn't have themselves at the center. It was easy to put Jesus there. I want to serve God in such a way that I feel his presence throughout the day. I don't want him ever to weep over my life and say... I was there for Phil when he woke up and he looked around as though I wasn't there. I followed him to the shower. I followed him when he shaved and he didn't have to fix his hair. So that was easy. We just kept on moving. I followed him to breakfast and into his car, and to church. And as he sat, he was working on sermons and he was studying and looking at commentaries and thinking and playing with words and everything else. And I wasn't involved in the whole process. I don't want that to be my story. I don't want that to be your story. So here are the questions as our worship team comes. Here are the questions I want you to take home with you. Here's here's what I think the Holy Spirit might be asking you today. Have you joined God's kingdom, or have you asked Him to join yours? Have you joined God's kingdom, or have you asked Him to join yours? Do you need God to deliver you today? Do you need to come clean this morning? Let's pray. Our worship team's coming, and as they come, they're going to lead us in a song here at the end. In just a moment, we're going to sing together. As they're getting set up and plugged in, and as we're just kind of thinking about what God might be saying to us each individually today, I'll invite our our prayer team to come if if you if you are. New to Echo Community Church or new to church in general. Uh, when I say prayer team, what I mean is these are men and women who I trust very deeply. These are people who are fully devoted followers of Jesus. They are trustworthy. The Bible teaches us that if we have anything going on in our life, a need, uh, a question, a decision, we need wisdom. or just feeling alone on something, the Bible says one of the most important things about coming into Christian community is that you have brothers and sisters. It, says we, it uses this phrase called bearing each other's burden. What that really means is just we're there for each other we're there for each other there's weeks as a pastor i have to call people here at the church and say can you pray with me about something i'm just i just need someone to pray with me so at the close of our services we just have a prayer team come up front and at the very end we just kind of open it up and anybody in the room who needs prayer or would just like someone to just listen to them for a moment and pray with them that's what they're here for in a moment we'll do that most important question is are there some things you need to come clean with god about this morning is it possible And I'm definitely in on this one. Trust me, you think it's not easy to listen to some of this stuff. It's not easy to preach. Because I recognize in my own life, I am still holding on to some of Phil's moral code for things. I follow God on some areas and in other areas, I'm just stubbornly doing things the way that I want to do things. I want that to change. I need that to change. And this morning, I'm taking a step towards that in my own life. But most importantly, are you here today and you say, I need Jesus to deliver me. I want a new life. I want to be that person you described this morning. I want to know that I've got a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I want to know that I am going to heaven. I want to know that that my life matters. That there is serving a greater purpose. I want to know that I can be free from all of the mistakes and all of the sin and all of the self-governing I've done in my life. I recognize that this is true, and I need to do something with what I'm hearing today. Let me tell you, if that's you, that's not just emotion. That there's probably emotion involved. That's not just the environment that that has something to do with what that is is jesus christ through his holy spirit inviting you to join his kingdom how do i join his kingdom you invite him in you do it i can't do it for you, you do it it's a statement you make to god that happens with your mouth and it happens in your heart Here's what it is. And if you want to join God's kingdom, I invite you, as I pray this prayer, you pray it right there in your seat right along with me. You just say, Dear Jesus, I believe you exist. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you are God Himself. I believe you came to earth just like the Bible says, and you lived the life I should have lived. You died the death I deserve to die, and you raised again from the dead, and you are alive today in heaven. I believe that through you I can have a relationship with God and that I can spend eternity with you in heaven, but I also confess something. I confess and I admit to you that I'm a sinner. Really what I'm saying is I have not lived by your code up to this point in my life. I've made my own rules. I've lived and made decisions based on what felt right to me. But I want to exchange being my own God for having you as my God. I don't want to be my own king. I want you to be my king, and I want to come live in your kingdom. So I invite you, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, to make your home inside of me. And from this moment forward, I will follow your plan for my life. And I will live by your code. And I will invite your spirit inside of me to transform me one step at a time, day after day after day. In your name I pray. Amen. So why not?